0: I mentioned near the end of the last episode that the organizing theme of righteousness and justice continues all the way through to the end of chapter 21. Bruce Walkey gives this chapter the title, Doing Righteousness and Justice, and I think that serves reasonably well. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king in ancient times was a very powerful figure, yet even his will was subject to the movements of providence. The imagery here is taken from the world of agriculture. Many commentators feel that the Hebrew word in the first colon would be better translated as canal. The wise father is saying that God leads and directs the hearts of kings like a farmer, leads and directs a flow of water by means of irrigation canals. So Matthew Henry says beautifully here, God can change men's minds, can, by a powerful, insensible operation under their spirits, turn them from that which they seemed most intent upon and incline them to that which they seemed most averse to, as the husbandman, by canals and gutters, turns the water through his grounds as he pleases, which does not alter the nature of the water, nor put any force upon it any more than God's providence does upon the native freedom of man's will, but directs the course of it to serve his own purpose. Quote. That's exactly right. God does no violence to our will, and yet even still, he's able to turn and direct our thoughts and actions towards the end that he has ordained. Now, practically speaking, this means that when God wants to intervene in global affairs, he has ready access to the levers that can affect the greatest change in the shortest space of time. By turning the king's heart, or the president's heart, or the prime minister's heart, this way or that way, God can change the entire course of human history. Verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. This proverb is a variant of the one we encountered in chapter 16, verse 2. Verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This is another one of those better than proverbs. It's not saying that God does not value sacrifice. If that were the case, then we would wonder at the specificity for sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. Rather, it is saying that even more than sacrifice, the Lord delights in righteousness and justice. We make a mistake as Christians when we create a contrast between worship and lifestyle. Both are important, but as this proverb is suggesting, how we live day to day is even more important than what we bring or how loud we sing when we gather for corporate worship. Verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. This is a difficult verse to translate and interpret. Part of the challenge has to do with understanding the metaphor of the lamp. It's an expression of some kind, obviously, but what exactly does it mean? It may mean that a person is like a lamp. Whatever is in the heart shines out through the eyes. And if the heart is wicked, well, then so too the overflow. All are sin. If that's the right understanding, then it would be similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Who you are inside will eventually shine out through all your outer windows. Behavior tells the truth about who we are inside. Verses 5 through 8 seem to go together. They all have to do with how people get their money. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. Here again, we see the common perspective in Proverbs that slow, steady, and honest is the best way to accumulate wealth. If you are hasty, if you go for the get-rich-quick plan, then you will eventually come to poverty. If you try to accumulate wealth through fraud and deceit, you will lose your money faster than you gained it. And if you use violence to amass wealth, that violence will turn back on you and sweep you away forever. The straight and narrow road may take a little longer. It may even be uphill at points. But in the end, it is the way that leads to lasting wealth and prosperity. That was good counsel 3,000 years ago, and it remains good counsel today. Verse 9 revisits a fairly common theme in Proverbs. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. This is another one of those better than Proverbs. Better a small but happy home than a large house filled with constant conflict. Amen to that. Verse 10 says, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Derek Kidner makes an important observation here about human depravity. He points out that men can sin not merely from weakness, but eagerly and ruthlessly. Quote. Wisdom is about understanding reality, and that means understanding that there is such a thing as evil in this world. There are evil people out there, people who enjoy hurting other people people who are basically predators in search of prey. You need to know that. You need to lock your doors at night. You need to take reasonable precautions. A leader in particular needs to know that. A leader needs to understand that you can educate some criminals, but certain offenders, you need to lock them up and throw away the key. Wisdom means living, serving, and leading in the world as it actually is. Verse 11 when a scoffer is punished the simple becomes wise when a wise man is instructed he gains knowledge this verse is making basically the same point that was made earlier in proverbs 19:25. there the wise father was saying that when you discipline a scoffer he isn't likely to be improved by it but you should still do it because other people will be discipline isn't just for the person receiving it it is also for the people observing it <laughs> As a youngest child, I can certainly attest to this. Watching my older brother and sister get punished for foolish behavior convinced me that obedience in general was just less costly than disobedience. At the end of the day, there is nothing wrong with learning things the easy way. I'd much rather watch someone else getting their mouth washed out with soap than go through that particular experience myself. So as a child, I made a list of words that it was more efficient not to say. That's just... Elementary accounting, you can call it whatever you want. That's the basic principle being observed here. Public punishment has a broad educational value. And of course, we see that same basic mentality on display in the pastoral epistles. Paul says to young Timothy, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Close quote. So Paul says there's got to be a process. There has to be some kind of standard of truth. He says that discipline is only to be applied to the unrepentant and persistent. But then he says that when you do need to rebuke a persistently sinful leader, do it in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest can stand in fear. Now, of course, you might say, well, fear isn't necessarily the best motivation, and that is true, but it is often the first motivation, and with some people, that's as good as it's ever going to get, and the wise leader understands that. Verse 12, the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. The commentators debate whether it is best to translate tzaddik here as the righteous man or the righteous one. In essence, we're trying to decide whether this verse is talking about what good leaders do or what God does. Both renderings, of course, would be true. The wise father has already told us that it is the job of leaders to weed out the wicked so that the righteous can flourish. But he's also told us on multiple occasions that God is watching how we play the game of life and that at some point in the future, he will show up and wipe all ill-gotten gains off the board. So however you translate it, it's going to be true. It's going to repeat something that has been said clearly somewhere else. And of course, we remember too that human judgment is supposed to resemble and anticipate divine judgment. So it is even possible that the wise father means for this verse to sound ambiguous. Maybe he wants us to hear this both ways. I'm not sure, but in this case, you really can't go wrong. Righteous leaders should be watching over the house of the wicked so as to restrain them, and so as to weed them out entirely if they do not reform their ways. And even if they aren't doing that, you can be sure that the judge of all things is doing that, and will do that at some point in the future, thanks be to God. Verse 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I always get nervous when people try to encourage general benevolence to the poor by appealing to the parable of the sheep and the goats. They will often say, Even a cup of cold water given to the poor in Jesus' name will be counted on Judgment Day as having been given to Christ himself. And I feel like that's a case of making the right point from the wrong text because that actually isn't what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. The key verse there is verse 40. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Close quote. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is making the point that true disciples will show themselves to be true disciples by their active need meeting, risk taking love for one another. The people of Jesus are going to love the people of Jesus. So he's not talking about the poor in general. He's talking about the poor and the vulnerable within the family of God. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So again, I think that might be a case of making the right point from the wrong passage. Now, of course, you certainly can make the point that caring for the poor and the vulnerable in general is pleasing to God. But ideally, you should locate that truth in an appropriate passage. The parable of the Good Samaritan would be a great choice in the New Testament, And this proverb that we're looking at here, Proverbs 21, 13, would be a great choice from the Old Testament. This proverb is saying that God is offended when we are disinterested in the plight of the poor. You really shouldn't need any further incentive to charitable living beyond that. Verse 14, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe strong wrath. We've talked a few times about the caution and equivocation exercised by the wise father when discussing bribes. He notes their effectiveness, but he is concerned about the justice of being able to buy a positive outcome, which probably explains why this proverb is paired with the one that follows. Verse 15 says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Putting these together, perhaps we would say, a kind gesture or a thoughtful gift can often turn enemies into friends. That being said, it is ultimately a just outcome that leads to peace and joy among the righteous. Verse 16 One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Life is a journey, and choosing the wrong path leads to sudden, inevitable, and eternal disaster. Let the reader understand. Verse 17 Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Of course, the wise father has identified a number of potential causes for poverty already. We've spoken about how laziness leads to poverty and about how injustice often leads to poverty. Well, here we're being told that self-indulgence is also a common cause of poverty. Tremper Longman III says here, The Bible is not opposed to alcohol but consumption should be reasonable, quote. That's good counsel. Verse 18, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright. This is a difficult proverb to make sense of. Proverbs in general are difficult to translate because they make use of common idioms. Imagine how hard it will be for translators 3,000 years from now, should the Lord tarry, to make sense of some of our sayings. A stitch in time saves nine. Well, nine what? Nine people? Nine cats? Nine hats? What in the world does that mean? If no one stitches up tears in their clothing 3,000 years from now, I'm guessing that expression will be completely incoherent. And we may be in a similar situation here with verse 18. It could be that the wise father is using colorful language to remind the royal son to highly value righteous people. He might be saying, if you have to lose a few wicked people to protect and preserve the righteous then go ahead and do that. He could be saying that. Or he could be saying that in the end, the wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. But it's difficult to say for sure. Verse 19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. We've seen versions of this proverb before. Better a small house, better a modest home, better a hut in the middle of a desert with peace than to live with a quarrelsome person. Verse 20, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Wise people save, foolish people devour. Of course, that's just basic economics. I read a comparison recently demonstrating the difference over time of buying a $4 coffee every day from Starbucks versus investing $4 in Starbucks the company every day over five years. The difference is staggering. The person who devours Starbucks coffee will spend $5,032 over five years. The person who invests $4 a day will have $8,718 worth of stock after five years. That's a difference of $13,750. Precious treasure or valuable stocks, you might say, are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish person drinks it all down. Now, Is the Bible saying it's wrong to ever buy a coffee? No, I don't think so. I think the wise father is just making a point here that appetite is expensive. If you want to be wealthy, you have to manage your appetite and you have to commit to the discipline of saving and investing. Now, we may not like hearing that, but I'm not sure how anyone could argue that. Verse 21, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. This is an incredibly helpful verse. There are certain things you can only find by pursuing something else. That's true, for example, when it comes to unity. People who are always pursuing unity end up like dogs chasing their tails. The best way to achieve unity is actually to do other things together. Do you want unity in your church? Then serve together, sing together, suffer together. You can't arrive at unity via a direct route. You get there by going somewhere else. That's what the wise father is communicating here. He's saying, you can get righteousness by pursuing righteousness, but to get life and honor, you need to pursue kindness or covenant love, as some translations have it. Some of the best things in life are byproducts of other things. Understanding that is one of the keys to happiness and success. Verse 22, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. This proverb is saying that wisdom is better than brute strength. Wars are won more by strategy than mere force of arms. But to get the whole picture on this, you have to wait for verse 31. So just stick a pin in this. Verse 23, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. We've talked about this before. Verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. I'm not sure any further explanation is required here. Verse 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Derek Kidner is helpful here. He says, The sluggard lives in his world of wishing, which is his substitute for working. It can ruin him materially, verse 25, and imprison him spiritually, verse 26, for he can neither command himself nor escape himself, closed quote. Parents, teach your children how to control their desires, Teach them to manage their emotions. Teach them to defer gratification. A child who does not learn these things is headed for social, material, and spiritual disaster. Verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. There's an important theological truth being made here. Worship and religious ritual do not and have never functioned in an ex opere operato kind of way this was one of the main points being made by the protestant reformers the sacraments of the church are only effective when they are conducted in faith it isn't as though the water in the baptismal tank is magic nor is there any particular power in the communion bread as such those things only communicate grace when they are approached and apprehended in faith And that's precisely the point that's being made here. Wicked hearts and hands going through righteous motions are an abomination to the Lord. Verses 28 and 29 appear to go together. A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. A wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. In these two verses, two types of people are being contrasted. The wicked man is the false witness. He is brazen. He doesn't listen because his mind is already made up. He may have his moment in the spotlight, but his testimony will not endure. The upright person, on the other hand, listens carefully and comes to his decisions thoughtfully. His testimony will endure. Remember, every decision, every verdict, every rumor, and every word of slander will be reviewed at the final judgment. And on that day, A great many verdicts will be overturned, a great many false witnesses will be condemned, and a great many innocent people will be fully and gloriously vindicated. Thanks be to God. Verse 30 No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. This proverb could stand alone as a reminder that the plans of the wicked have no chance of succeeding against the Lord. He who sits in the heavens. Laughs, as Psalm 2 4 says. But it can also be understood more narrowly in relation to verses 28 to 29, which we just read. It could be that the wise father is saying, Don't be too alarmed by the conspiracies and slanders of wicked men. They tell lies as if they truly believe them. They don't care about the truth. They care only for their own plans and ambitions. But don't worry about that. He who sits in the heavens, laughs. He holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Never forget that the truth always comes out in the end. Nobody gets away with anything and God always gets the last word. Hallelujah. Verse 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. We've seen this principle before in a more general way. Here it is being applied to the field of battle. Preparation is good. Strategy is good. Better even than brute strength. You should do those things, absolutely. But never forget for a second that all of those things are useless if they run afoul of the purpose and providence of the Lord. It is His will that must ultimately be established. It is His purpose against which no wisdom, no understanding, no scheme, no counsel, and no conspiracy will avail. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into of the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for of the word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.